When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Study Smarter series is made possible with the help of Osmosis, the personalized learning platform that manages med school for you. It's been called the Netflix of medical education and is the only system that analyzes your coursework and intelligently recommends personalized quizzes, mnemonics, videos, reference articles, and of course, multiple choice practice questions. You can learn more about Osmosis by staying tuned to this episode and throughout the Study Smarter series as we dissect questions from their platform, get access to a lot of their free open access medical education by going to osmosis.org and signing up for a free trial of the premium Osmosis Prime. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, we're back with Emily Tan from whitecoatcoaching.com, who has a new podcast on the iTunes podcast app. You can find it at the White Coat Coaching Orthopedic Podcast. This is part two of our anatomy discussion in the Step 1 Study Smarter series. And on our next episode, we'll have Ken Rosenthal, author of, among other things, Rapid Review Microbiology and Immunology. So stay tuned. A 65-year-old woman comes to the clinic because her right thumb seems weaker than the left. She's also noticed that she can no longer open jars of food on her own and has dropped two on the floor while carrying them short distances. She retired earlier this year and has spent most of her time quilting, which she used to do only on weekends. Sounds like an exciting weekend. Physical examination shows <laughs> decreased pinprick sensation on the palmar aspect of the first three digits and normal sensation on the thanar eminence. On tapping the palmar surface of the wrist, the patient notices tingling in spots on the lateral half of the hand. Which of the following muscles is innervated by the nerve associated with her condition? It's a complicated interrogatory, but choices are a, adductor pollicis, B, brachioradialis, C, extensor carpi radialis longus, D, pronator teres, and E, supinator. Going back since that was a little complicated, so which of the following muscles is innervated by the nerve associated with her condition? Pronator teres. So this is, yeah, like a two-step question, right? So the first part of the question is asking you to identify what her diagnosis is. So um, carpal tunnel syndrome is basically our most classically numbness in your thumb, index, and long finger. They've actually shown a good way to diagnose patients with carpal tunnel is to have them draw out or color in the part of their hand that's numb. Interesting. 
they will show you that their thumb, their index, and their long finger are numb. The further on in the question, they talk about tapping on her palmar surface of the wrist, and that's the classic Tennell's test. And so you're basically tapping over the carpal tunnel, irritating the media nerve, causing reproducing or reproducing the symptoms that she has. Um, so now that you know it is the median nerve, the question is asking what muscle is innervated? What muscle in the following list is innervated by the median nerve? And that would be the pronator teres. All right. What's the median nerve do? Like, what else does it innervate? Fast facts about that. So the median nerve is really important for your thenar muscles. Um, it controls basically the lateral side of your hand. So your first two lumbricals, your opponent's pollicis, your abductor pollicis brevis, and your flexor pollicis brevis are all innervated by the median nerve. Okay. The pronator teres, like we said, is innervated in the forearm. This is definitely a two-part question because if you had carpal tunnel syndrome, you would not have any effect of your pronator teres because your median nerve and carpal tunnel syndrome is only affected in your carpal tunnel. And by the time it gets to your carpal tunnel, it's already innervated the pronator teres. Are there, looking at these distractors like uh, adductor pollicis, are there any clinically important syndromes or items to note related to the adductor adductor pollicis? So the adductor pollicis is innervated by your ulnar nerve. And so in your hand, the other half of the important muscles in your hand are basically innervated by your ulnar nerve. Brachioradialis was choice B. That's a, a forearm muscle, right? And that's innervated by the radial nerve. Mm-hmm. C was extensor carpi radialis longus, which is like one of the longest muscle names in the body, I suppose. That was a joke. Terrible one, but... <laughs> Um, but this one's also innervated by the radial nerve and functions to extend the radial portion of the hand at the wrist. Mm-hmm. And so these last two were innervated by the radial nerve. One thing that I remember from step one is you can have Saturday night palsy, yeah, uh, which affects your radial nerve. Basically, if you party a little too hard on a Saturday night and you lay on your radial nerve, nerves are very easily irritated. And so if you end up with a palsy of the radial nerve, you'll have a wrist drop. So that looks like that. Yeah, we're making lots of uh, movements with our wrist today. But <laughs> yes, so you just won't be able to extend your wrist. Okay. Choice E, supinator. Also innervated by the radial nerve. Obviously supinates the hand. Next, if 59-year-old male presents complaining of bilateral tingling sensation in the fourth and fifth digits of his right hand. He is a computer technician and this is interfering with his work and has been ongoing for a few months. You notice hypothanar wasting on examination, but no loss of sensation. You suspect a neuropathy of a nerve found in which of the following locations? A, carpal tunnel. B, posterior to the medial epicondyle. C, posterior wrist. D, running along with the profunda brachii artery or E, underneath the biceps brachii tendon? And the answer is B, posterior to the medial epicondyle, because this nerve is the ulnar nerve, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is the other very common neuropathy, cubital tunnel syndrome. 
So we had kind of talked about the two important nerves of the hand. This will classically be the fourth and fifth or the ring and the small finger of the hand. And the ulnar border of the hand uh, usually is pretty numb too. What else are they talking about here in the question stem? So he's a computer technician. If you think about the nerve swinging around the back of your medial condyle. So everybody, when you hit your funny bone, this is what you hit. You can probably reach down to the medial side of your elbow right now, and if you push hard enough, it'll be pretty uncomfortable. That nerve slings right around the back of that medial condyle, and the more bent your elbow is, the more tension you're putting on this nerve. So as a computer technician, he probably spends a lot of time with his elbow bent typing. I actually have cubital tunnel as well, and uh, you'll notice that a lot of people, well, I sleep with my elbows bent and a lot of people will have to wake up in the middle of the night with their fingers tingling and kind of shake out their hand or straighten out their elbow to get the feeling back. And that all has to do with putting your nerve on stretch across the back of your medial epicondyle. Yeah. So, I mean, these other distractors, I think we can move on from because we kind of have covered those in the rest of this sort of anatomy review. A 55-year-old woman comes to the emergency department because of wrist pain. Her history indicated that she tripped on the sidewalk and landed on her outstretched right hand. On examination, there's no obvious deformity of the right wrist or hand. She has full passive and active range of motion of the wrist joint. There is pain to palpation over the dorsoradial aspect of the wrist. Axial loading of the thumb reproduces this pain. Grip strength is diminished compared to the left hand. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Fracture of the fifth metacarpal. B. Distal radial fracture. C. Scaphoid fracture. D. Ulnar shaft fracture. Or E. Wrist sprain. And the answer for this is a scaphoid fracture. And I might have got this if I were taking step one. This is a pretty classic sort of thing you should probably know for uh, the boards because the pain, palpation in that dorsal radial aspect of the wrist is the anatomical snuff box, right? Mm-hmm. And if you have tenderness there, is that, for board's purposes, pretty pathognomonic of a scaphoid fracture? Yep. So um, I I think that they test this a lot because that's something that you don't want to miss, the scaphoid fracture. Is it um, scaphoid? I think so. Oh, my That's gosh. what I say. All right. Well, I don't want to have to edit all that, so I'll just correct my pronunciation from here on out. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, so yeah, you don't want to miss a scaphoid fracture. And so that's why it's always important when you have someone who falls on an outstretched hand landing probably on that scaphoid to before you go with just a wrist sprain, if there's no obvious deformity or anything on their x-rays, before you just diagnose them with a wrist sprain, you want to make sure to palpate that snuff box to see if there's any tenderness. And why don't you want to miss it? Is it because the scaphoid bone has a tenuous blood supply? That is exactly why. So uh, scaphoid fractures with that tenuous blood supply, when you think about a fracture healing, there's a couple of things that need to happen. One is it needs to have enough blood in order for it to heal itself. And two is it needs to kind of, it needs to be stable enough to hold still so that the little osteocytes can start to build new bone. So for the scaphoid fracture, it's really more a concern about the blood supply. The scaphoid is 
over 70% covered with cartilage and ligaments and stuff. So there's really only a couple areas that blood vessels get into it. There's also what we call retrograde flow. So depending on where it's broken, it makes it more or less likely to be able to heal on its own. If you have someone that you feel like might have a scaphoid fracture, and we say might because some of these are so minimally displaced that on x-ray they're not an obvious fracture. So you might get an x-ray of the hand and not see anything, but they just keep complaining about pain in that one spot. It's better for them if you were to just treat them as though they have a scaphoid fracture, and that would be in a thumb spica splint, basically something that can hold their thumb still, and then have them come back for more x-rays, because if it was actually fractured, you'd probably see something a little bit later on in the healing process. And uh, this is a big site for osteonecrosis, the scaphoid bone, right? Which mm-hmm. is the whole ultimate point of the discussion about the the blood supply and whatnot. Just curious on that note, osteonecrosis, isn't there like another big area that uh, that shows up on step one, like um, hips in the hips. Uh, so it's right at the, what, the head of the femur? Yeah. So um, yeah, avascular necrosis of the femoral head. There's a couple ways that you can get that. I think on step one, one of the triggers would be high dose steroids that could potentially lead them to them having hip pain that may or may not show up on x-ray. And then you'd have to get an MRI uh, to show basically their femoral head is dying. All right. Sorry, that tangent. But choice A was a fracture of the fifth metacarpal. That's a boxer's fracture, right? Right. So what they're describing there is a boxer's fracture. Or an angry person hitting a wall fracture. Yes, an angry hurt person hitting something that is stronger than their hand fracture. We see a lot of these, but classically someone gets mad and punches something. And you'd be surprised because a lot of people come back with multiples of these. Um, (laughs) Remember that there are studs every 18 inches in a wall. All right, B was a distal radius fracture, uh, Collie's fracture, right? So distal radius fractures come in many flavors, but Collie's fractures are extra articular extension type distal radius fractures. And that's very common in like the little, (laughs) so they are extension type. Basically, if you think about your little old lady falling out onto an outstretched hand, she's falling, she's trying to catch herself and she lands on her wrist. So one of the weakest parts of your bone is the metaphyseal area, which is basically that area just adjacent to the joint line. And then the diaphysis, which is the shaft of the bone, is generally stronger. There's just this mushy part kind of near the ends. And that's where these distal radiuses usually break in these little old ladies. And so you'll have this extension moment where the hand, you think about it extending backwards as she catches herself, it'll break there. And by extra articular, I mean that it's in that metaphyseal region and it doesn't go into the joint. Okay. So when you use the eponym Collie's fracture, that's what they're referring to. Ulnar shaft fracture. These are called nightstick fractures. What happens with these? This is a kid thing, right? Um, actually, it can happen to anyone. Hopefully, we're yes, and, and that's probably why it's called the nightstick fracture. Hopefully, no one is using a nightstick <laughs> on a child, but essentially, that makes sense. These are traumatic. Exactly. So, for example. If you were to paint the picture of someone trying to defend themselves from a nightstick, nightstick, you would stick out your arm, right? And if you stick out, put your arm in front of your face, the bone that points away from you is your ulna. Ah. Oh, I was thinking of green stick. Is there a green stick fracture? Yes, there is. Is that pediatric? green stick fracture, it is. Okay. (laughs) 
I haven't forgot everything uh, about bones. We have such creative names, but if you think about a green stick, like a, a branch that's still pretty green. Yeah. If you were to take a dry branch that's been laying on the ground for a while, it's very easy It'll to snap. snap. Yeah. But if you have a green stick that's still pretty moist or wet, it'll bend first. Yeah, and if it does break, it breaks all in these weird, like... It'll break on one side first, right? Yeah, so yeah, that's... a lot of kid fractures, um, they have green stick or torus fractures. They're different. But a green stick, you think about that springy stick, it'll bend and then it'll break on one side. And the way we say it is there is a break on the tension side, and then there's a plastic deformation. Plastic being that it deforms and then it kind of stays in that position. So it's not a complete break all the way through the bone, but it's green stick. It's bent and kind of broken on one. I would say that this has been so helpful for my own learning just for your explanation of some of these eponyms and classic terms, um, because they're actually sort of descriptive, which I didn't realize. I have no idea why it never registered that a nightstick fracture had to do with like <laughs> trauma to the uh, ulna in defense, <laughs> a defensive position. And then E was wrist sprain, and I think you highlighted that uh, it's important to distinguish a scaphoid fracture from a wrist sprain because of the consequence of avascular necrosis or osteonecrosis resulting from injury to some branch of the radial artery. That All right, well, I don't want to take any more of your time. I so appreciate you uh, for taking the time to come on. Uh, the show and do a little bit of teaching on anatomy for the boards for our step one study smarter series we will be so glad to have you back come summer or late spring you can tell us more about course and everything that white coat coaching is doing thank you great thanks for having me absolutely thanks to james from two o'clock courage for giving us permission to use the song the Valentine Blast Furnace off 2016's album Missalette. Check out 2o'clockcourage.com or listen to them on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks to Stuart Bryant, our producer, and to every one of you who takes the time to listen to this. Happy study. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of inside the boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.